Welcome to Sketch Therapist. It's the podcast that improves your sketch life. Well, it may be June, but in Galway, it's still freezing cold. So in today's episode, I'm going to take you to the tropics, to the island of Mauritius and a little trip around the coast. Well, some years ago, my family and I spent six months in Mauritius. So I thought I would share with you a little bit about our first days on the island, we had arrived in January, which of course is the middle of a dreadful winter in Galway, but we arrived in really hot summer in Mauritius. And I made a few notes about our stay there. Um, and one of the lovely things we did shortly after arrival, and here is what I wrote. We've been in Mauritius about a week and Jean-Marc, who's turning out to be a very friendly sort of landlord, makes a suggestion. Would you like to go for a boat trip next Sunday, he says. And by the way, I cannot for the life of me remember Jean-Marc's accent. He's very tall. He is very dark brown. He is typically Mauritian. He kind of looks, I suppose, like a cross between Hindu and, I don't know, African, but not really. Like, it's just typical Mauritian. You you just, you can't say anything about the heritage. It's just a mix of... um of lots of different heritages. And I'm pretty sure he was Catholic. <laughs> but like I say, you just you just never know. Anyway, back to where I was. Would you like to go for a boat trip next Sunday, he says. Non-profit. We will visit the wreck of the Saint-Gérant, where you may, if you wish, dive to the cannon of the wreck. Then we will go to an island and have a walk, followed by a picnic and a barbecue. I will provide the food and drink. Do you like fruit punch? Yes, we answer as one. I will bring some fruit punch then and Coke and Fanta for the children and beer, the lot. We will get there by fishing boat. There will be a party of nine altogether and we will share the cost between us. He suggests a price that seems very reasonable. You can go in a catamaran and do the same trip, he adds, but it will be one half more expensive. There will be fewer people on our trip and we'll spend the whole day out. Will I confirm you for next Sunday? Marcel, my husband, catches my eye and sums up our feelings. Jean-Marc, he says, there's simply no other way I would rather spend a Sunday. Right, says Jean-Marc. So that's confirmed then. We begin to look forward to it. Now, I'm a bit nervous of one thing, and I, it's not that we might be eaten by a shark, which of course is a possibility because we're going to go right past the reef. It's the sun that gives me cause for concern. Seeing there's no such thing, it appears, as a sun cream that actually protects against the Mauritian summer sun at midday. I'm going to be out in the water. It's going to be merciless. The following Sunday is a perfect day, hot and clear, with only the tiniest fluffs of cloud on the horizon. I've decided that I'm going to get round the sun problem by getting my kids to wear t-shirts all day. Sadly, in the event, I forget to make sure that Marcel and I wear them too. And it takes us a full seven days to heal from our dreadful sunburn. But on that sunny Sunday morning, our boat trip is still ahead of us and we set off in fine fettle across the northern part of the island to the sleepy village of Poudre d'Or, having been introduced to our fellow travellers before we start. As well as our five, there's Philippe, a tall French freelance photographer of about 60 or so, with white hair and a white moustache, who's lived in Ile Maurice, which is Mauritius in French, for 11 years. His girlfriend, a pretty and voluptuous Malagasy lady called Marie, Jean-Marc, our landlord, and his girlfriend, a tiny little girl called Claudia. Well, she's not a tiny little girl, but she's a very petite little lady. 
And she's also from Madagascar. She's very beautiful. She's a bit like a cross between Queen Nefertiti and the model Naomi Campbell. We meet our boatman on the quay. He has a wonderful name. He's called Fonfon Latulipe. He's about 40. He's got caramel coloured skin and a very dinky French looking moustache with little droopy pointy bits at the at the corners. He has white teeth and he smiles a lot, showing very cute dimples when he does so. I'm a little bit smitten. He wears a typically Mauritian straw hat with a slightly pointy top, narrow mirrored sunglasses, a faded indigo cheesecloth shirt and denim shorts, expertly but nonchalantly cut off just below the knee. Marcel and I agree he's straight out of a Bond movie, the Sean Connery type, in which he would also be a boatman, but one who turns out to be a whiz with a harpoon. With the sun absolutely blistering down on top of us, we all pile into Rudy's little rowboat. Sorry, Fonfon La Tulipe. I had given him a fake name and I forgot for a second. Fonfon La Tulipe. That's his real name. And away we sat. Everyone is tucked under a wide brimmed hat and I've sewn elastic onto all the kids' hats for the occasion so that they won't blow away. As we set off over the turquoise water, I think to myself that it's as close to a waking dream as I've ever had. Our first stop is the reef, or just before it. How strange it feels to stop in the middle of the ocean to look at something, when there appears to be nothing to see but a blue carpet. The reef was scary. One minute you're in the turquoise cam and suddenly right next to you, remember you're miles from the shore in the middle of the ocean, you're greeted by a pile of white horses breaking in front of you, seemingly on nothing. But of course the reef is just below the surface. We've stopped at that particular point because that's where the saint Geran had sunk in 1744 and its cannon can be seen just below the surface. The story is that the ship sank and a young lady passenger refused to accept help from a black sailor because it, it would have meant taking off her heavy dresses and compromising her modesty. She went apparently to her death rather than risk exposing herself, although I think technically she wouldn't have because I hear that she would have got to keep on her underwear. But however, that's what happened. And no one really mentions the fact that the sailor who tried to save her lost his life as a result of trying to save her. The event inspired the novel Paul et Virginie, which was written in 1787 by a fellow called Bernardin de Saint-Pierre. Um, he had spent some time out in Mauritius and heard this story and wrote this novel. And it's the novel is a story about a girl, the daughter of a rich widow and a boy, the son of a poor unmarried woman, who grow up side by side in total freedom in the tropical paradise of Mauritius and gradually fall in love. Virginie is sent to France to be classically educated when she turns 18, but returns to Mauritius to be returned to be sorry, reunited with her lover, only to be shipwrecked within sight of the shore. The young uh, Paul, her, her lover, wades out to try to save her, but he can't and he dies of a broken heart a few years later. The novel was absolutely huge when it came out and in one of the main Mauritian museums, the Blue Penny in Port Louis, which is the capital, there's an entire floor dedicated to the novel. There's sculptures of the young lovers, there's paintings, all that kind of stuff. The the wreck of the ship, the only part of the story that's true, is still on the seabed, but the cannon is just under the surface and anyone who wants to risk being carried out to sea by the waves or dashed against the reef can take a closer look. And My husband Marcel is a little bit gung-ho about um, that kind of thing and he's a very strong and confident swimmer. Um, so he decides to jump in and see the, the cannon for himself. And he tells me that it's intact, completely crusted over with bits of barnacle and stuff and lies less than a metre below the surface. And all very cool, but I'm glad 
Um, I didn't chance it. Marcel says that he had to swim hard to avoid being swept away. And in fact, um, after he comes back up again from playing around and looking at the cannon, he swims after the boat and we're kind of trying to find a kind of a calm spot for him to jump in. Um, Now, my French is really good, but up until that point, I'd never understood um, a joke in French without it being translated. Um, And Philippe looks at Marcel swimming after the boat and he says, uh, he says, he says really quickly, I have no idea who that guy is. He's been following us for half an hour and we just can't lose him. And I'm, I'm thrilled to bits because, um, because I understand it and it's in French and it's a joke and I get it. So I was really pleased with myself. Um, and Marcel, I remember Marcel, he, he apologised to Philippe for his, his terrible French. And um, Philippe says to him, um, look, he says, if I spoke English half as well as you spoke, as you speak French, I'd, I'd be delighted with, with myself. Now, I, I, I never read um, the novel Paul et Virginie, and I have no intention of so doing because I am not a one for sad endings. So there you go. I won't be reading it. So back to the story anyway. Back in the boat, our next destination is pretty close. Although how Fonfon La Tulipe knows his way around a featureless sheet, sheet of ocean beats me. We stop over another nondescript bit of sea and we hop over the side, masks and snorkels in place. And it's really beautiful. I do the usual girly thing of screaming down my snorkel when I look into the abyss just because what I see takes my breath away and causes me to scream. The kids and the adults left in the boat all stop talking to see what's wrong because, you know, of my screaming. But there are great pillows of corals, all sorts of colours, and they're all teeming with fish life. It's much more full of life than the coral reef at Blue Bay, um, where we stopped on our first day. And I think it features in an earlier episode of the podcast. The fish are all doing their own thing, completely heedless of the onlookers. They chase imposter fish away from their pads. They do their courtship things and they generally go about their fishy lives, heedless of us. It's not turquoise down below. It's a very deep blue. But of course, you have to remember the water is super warm. The coral is a good two metres below us and it's altogether very evocative. After that, we motor out to another part of the sea. This time the water is a pale turquoise, unlike the azure that constitutes most of the rest of the water we've gone over. This bit is a sandbank. Um, this stop is for anyone who's a bit less confident about swimming in the deeper bits. Um, and the less confident include my little Livy, who's only seven years old at the time, and also Claudia, um, Jean-Marc's beautiful girlfriend. She has straight black hair cut into a bob and she's got these slanted eyes and a sensual, beautifully shaped mouth and an aquiline nose. She's just gorgeous. And she doesn't say much. Well, she speaks a bit to her friend and fellow Malagash, um, Marie. And the little French that that she does speak, she speaks in a delightful trilling accent that must be peculiar to Madagascar because um, Marie speaks in the same way. Um, Philippe and his girlfriend, Marie, they're all over each other all day long. But for some reason, it doesn't annoy me, which is unusual for me. I'm usually very, you know, annoyed by PDAs, but not that day I wasn't. I suppose it was just also sort of paradisey. And I find out afterwards... Um, that he has been recently widowed and I and I'm just pleased for him that he's you know found comfort in the arms of a beautiful young woman in the person of Marie. So anyway that was our little bit with the sandbank and it was all very very lovely and it's kind of strange because we're super shallow in the middle of the ocean and I mean I know how that's how sandbanks work but it's still kind of odd. After our little swim 
which basically was like being in a massive swimming pool and as warm as a lovely heated pool, we hop back into the boat and we crack open a cold beer and munch a freshly baked pastry stuffed with a, a fishy paste, rather tasty, that Jean-Marc has bought that morning from Chez Jacqueline, a tiny little patisserie on a narrow back road in Trubiche, which Marcel and I got to know very, very well in the um, ensuing months because they did gorgeous fresh pastries every day. So basically Mauritius is very French in many ways and... Uh, no self-respecting French village would be would be uh, complete without um, a little patisserie that sells or a boulangerie that sells fresh pastries. And that's the way it is Mauritius too. After that, it's time to visit um, Ile d'Ambre, which translates as Amber Island, I think. Um, but I'm not sure if it was for any amber that might have been found there. We motor lazily in and out of the lagoons and although we do pass one or two other boats, um, the other passengers, they just, you know, wave nicely to each other because it's like everyone's conscious that we're all spending a day in paradise. Fonfon stands silently at the back, manoeuvring the boat through the shallow bits with a long pole. That bit was, that bit's fun. He has to pick his way carefully between rocks and corals just below the surface and I imagine that if you don't know that patch of sea really well, you wouldn't be long putting a hole in your boat. There are loads of great mangrove swamps around the edges of the water. Marcel tells me it's a way for islands to grow bigger. Apparently, mangrove trees cause a build-up of silt as they push ever outwards and eventually new land forms. We stop at Ile d'Ambre and make our way across the island for a little walk just to enjoy walking through the trees. There are Hindu and Christian shrines on the island that are the first things you see. Apparently, some guy used to live on Ile d'Ambre all alone and we pass the ruins of his very small house. It's pretty lovely, but it reminds me of a walk on a summer's day through an Irish forest. Not much in the way of tropical looking trees once you're inside the forest. I'm quite touched when the two girls from Madagascar want a photo um, with our kids. They're a bit shy before us, me and Marcel, but they don't have the same trouble with the kids. We meet Fonfon at the other end of the island um, where he was to meet us with his boat. And from there, we make our way across the water to another island where the idea is to have a barbecue. I don't know if the beer has gone to my head, but I really feel like I'm drifting away in a cloud. We moor in shallow sand in a delightful little cove and Jean-Marc, Philippe and the girls get the barbecue going. We have sausages, Mauritian black pudding, which is delicately spiced and delicious. We have beefsteaks marinated in cane syrup and we have some gorgeous salads, all made by Jean-Marc, who is just a great cook. I sit on the blanket as instructed and I accept glass after glass of rum punch. Afterwards, Jean-Marc and Claudia insist on cleaning up while Philippe and, and Marie and I chat away. Fonfon standing up, leaning in his extremely cool way against a tree near the blanket. I would love to become a Mauritian citizen, says Marcel to Fonfon. And before Marcel has a chance to explain that he's eligible for citizenship through his Mauritian father, Fonfon replies, right in front of me, just divorce your wife and marry a Mauritian girl, he says. And at that point, I very much go off Fonfon and I decide he's not that cool after all. A little while later, uh, Philippe and Marie disappear and everyone else disappears too. And I find myself alone. So I do that most wonderful thing after a slightly boozy lunch in the heat. I lay my head back. I look at the canopy of leaves above my head and I fall into a delicious sleep. When I awake, I join the kids for another little swim. I can see Philippe and Marie locked in a passionate, silent embrace, floating in the still turquoise water of the lagoon, and I'm happy for them. 
The children mess about in the lava rock pools and my Paddy, who I guess is about 10, finds a beautiful cowrie shell just sitting there. He presents it to his dad, who to this day keeps it in the top drawer of his bedside table. Eventually we all make our sleepy way back to the mainland. There must have been something in that punch. Alcohol perhaps, as I don't really remember much of the journey back. I vaguely remember eating sweet ripe mangoes and flinging the skins in the water. When we land at Poudre d'Or, the little village from which we had set, Jean-Marc has one last surprise for us. He has a bowl full of pineapple halves, which he has peeled and left to steep in cane syrup and rum all day. Now, I've eaten a lot of pineapple since that day, but none has ever compared with the pineapple we had that late afternoon on the quay at Poudre d'Or. You might remember from an early episode of um, this podcast that it was in Mauritius that I discovered sketching. So I guess I'd been there maybe about a month um, by the time I received that book that I suppose it ended up changing my life really because that's that's how I started to draw what was in front of me. And one of the places I ended up drawing was a really beautiful beach that was called Montchoisy. And here is what I wrote about it. My next project was the beach at Montchoisy. This is a public beach which goes on for about a mile with a long narrow lagoon of a bright turquoise colour licking the shores of an even narrower strip of beach. The beach is a good choice for those of a suspicious or nervous disposition as there is nothing at all living in the water. However, the water is an opaque pale turquoise so it's still pretty scary. So one of the things that I really wanted to draw on that beach um, was a white high ace van, believe it or not, because it was draped with um, some really colourful merchandise that people were selling. And here we go. This is what I say about it. In these public beaches, there are often white transit type vans selling colourful dresses and sarongs or parios, which they hang all over the outside of the vans, providing a blast of colour visible through the green and browns of the trees and the sand. It was one of these that I wanted to paint and I soon find a composition I like. As I draw, a huge coach drives up behind me with what sounds like an entire school on board. It more or less has. There are about a 100 young boys streaming out of the bus, aged, as it turned out, from about 10 to 12 years old. They're in white shirts and navy trousers, so I guess they were on a school trip. They say that they're with their art teacher and they're very keen to watch me draw, so they line up on either side of me. The line of boys gets longer and longer and since I tell them they're not to block my view they form a V on either side of me. So many that the ones at the end of the line on either side haven't a hope of seeing anything and don't even crane their necks to try. They just gaze calmly ahead. There must be about 30 boys watching me paint and they're exuberant and noisy but they're very well behaved. My Stanley knife is on a stool next to me and I'm sort of conscious that it would be very tempting for a young boy but the blade has just been changed and there's no way I can let them go near it, well behaved or not. Somehow I knew they could be trusted not to act the maggot and I continued to draw, my concentration not too disturbed. But sure enough, eventually they find a reason to use the Stanley knife. Madame, madame, one little lad says. Seeing as they're basically a collective rather than an individual, he is talking on behalf of his pal. His friend wants to borrow the knife to cut the top of his carton of juice. Pretty legitimate as uses go, so I say yes, he can use it, but I would do the cutting. I felt very mummyish, naturally as my kids are about the same age as those fellas. 
Many have hoarse voices, the type you hear in Spain, which I think a child gets from spending his entire life shouting. They're beautiful boys. They all have jet black hair, huge black eyes with endless slashes. They're really dark skinned and they smell so sweet. of Brightly coloured, unnaturally flavoured sweets, which they're enthusiastically chomping. They smell of their mother's care. They come and go, uh, but some are there for a good hour and they seem to be enthralled to see the sketch taking shape. They're really wonderful company. Apart from the fact that they say cute things and engage thoroughly with me, I've been getting a bit hot before their arrival and they block out the sun for the hour or so that they stand behind me. One offers to share his unnaturally coloured biscuits with me. Another goes and gets his drum and starts banging it enthusiastically until his friend tells him to stop, telling him it will annoy Madame. Others kick their ball about or punch each other. But it's all very playful, like the proverbial bunch of puppies. Eventually, their teachers drift over, or rather, the coach driver and their teacher. They must have been chilling out on the beach or something, as there's been no effort made whatsoever to look after the boys. The coach driver is not remotely interested in what I'm doing, but the other man is. If only I had more time, he says, I would stop and paint beside you. Are you going to colour it in watercolour? I guess this must be the art teacher that the boys had pointed out to me. We chat about this and that about painting, but he's not half as much fun as the boys. Your pupils are beautifully behaved, I say to him. Yes, they are, he says. Everyone in Mauritius is like that. I'm inclined to agree. A very lovely couple run the Pareo van, the white high ace with the sarongs outside it. I eventually find out their names are Sunita and Sunil. Um, I guess they are Hindus, as Sunita has a red spot on her forehead. I meet them the first time about a week before I start painting Monchoisie. Uh, I'm browsing the van and a gorgeous young girl of about 22 or so asks if I need any help. She has black hair in a thick plait all the way down to her backside and she has a rockabilly quiff on top and light sensitive glasses that are usually pretty dorky but somehow look very cool on her. I sense that she's a chatty type and she's very cool though and soon we're talking away about this and that. Ireland, she says when I say where I'm from. I lived in Ireland for one and a half years. I worked in pennies on Eden Quay. Oh yes, I say, what brought you to Ireland? I couldn't get a visa for England, she says. Surprise, surprise. That's something I've heard more than once. Come to Ireland, guys. How did you find it? Okay, I ask. Very expensive, she says. I tried to study and work, but in the end it didn't work out. Okay, maybe don't come to Ireland. She doesn't say anything positive about Ireland, but she speaks very fast in Creole, so I might have missed a thing or two. Anyway, after a bit, I ask her if she minds if I draw her van. She's pretty cool about that, too. Neither enthusiastic nor negative. And if I'm not here, my dad will be, she says, gesticulating towards her father, who's a very quiet man leaning against a tree. He gives me the thumbs up and he seems pretty cool himself. So... When I get there a week later and start painting, I have already had an introduction and the girl's father saunters over to say hello. And he turns out to be Sunil. The first thing he does is extend his hand. Big warm shake. He's utterly laid back with a gorgeous lazy gait, tall and thin with a neat moustache. He loves watching me draw and over the next couple of days he comes over every hour or so to see how I'm getting on. He has cute dimples when he smiles. We chat loads whenever he comes over. You haven't drawn the little dodo on that towel, he says, pointing to the blue towel draped over the van. You don't have to do it. It's your thing. It's not my thing. But I'm just saying, just a little dodo, just there. It is my thing, I agree, but it's your towel. I'll draw the dodo. I draw the dodo, but I was probably a bit tired by then and I'm not paying attention. So I draw too big. 
Never mind, it's there in the picture to honour that lovely man. His wife is just as wonderful in a different way. She's plump and she's very pretty, in her 40s, I should think. We speak about her children, about having girls versus having boys. She tells me about her daughter's new baby, who's due to arrive any day. We speak about her colourful sarongs, her parios, and how they look so lovely in the shade of the filau trees. She says her island is pretty much a paradise, and I agree. I tell her I'll come back with a bit of cash and buy something from her van. So, two days later, when I finished the painting, I had the very nice self-reward of choosing something from her van. I'm not crazy about the women's clothes she's selling. The prints aren't quite me, but I choose a dress each for my two girls and a nice t-shirt for Paddy. I also choose a dress for me, but I change it the next day. Sunita is so nice. She gives me the gift of a pario. Is it your colour? She asks. You can choose another if you like. No, it's lovely, I say, even though it's not really my colour. I'm so touched. Thank you so much, I say. You're so kind. It's my colour, she says, smiling. I'm glad I didn't change it for another. As it turns out, my husband, Marcel, reckons it's very much my colour. It isn't. Before I leave, the lady's daughter arrives, the one who'd been to Ireland. We had a nice chat again. I tell her about the book I'm writing. I tell her the name of the book and I tell her I'll send her a copy. Now, a little update on that. I don't finish the book. Well, it is finished, but it's not published. So it's unlikely I'll be sending her a copy anytime soon. But I hope she's listening to my podcast. Au revoir, princesse, she says, which combined with her top knot quiff, her plait down her backside, her dark glasses and her cut off shorts makes her simply the coolest chick that I met in all the time I was in Mauritius. Well, ironically, I'm not going to teach you much in the way of um, sketching tips in this particular episode of Sketch Therapist, except, I suppose, in the sense that, well, Mauritius is where it all kicked off and it was a super inspiring place to sketch and for my whole sketching life to kick off. But what I do want to tell you about is a little bit about the sea because that's kind of the theme that's going on here. So here's another little piece I wrote about the sea. The sea. Obvious comment. The sea is never far away in Mauritius. You don't drive very far in any direction before you see it in front of you again. Okay, so the island is about 50 miles long and what is it maybe 20 something wide so really you're never you're never far you're never far from the sea these are my favorite ways to see the sea around Mauritius in the summer in the morning sunshine when it has a wholly improbable turquoise color and sparkly white horses breaking on the reef when you're stuck in traffic on the high ground and suddenly you see a vast shimmering sheet on the horizon When you're arriving home at the end of the day and the sun is beginning to dip over the horizon and the sea is greyish blue but still throwing white horses good o against the shore and lads are relaxing with beers under the trees nearby or playing bull in a desultory way or in the sea through a face mask at all the mad life going on all around you. I decide that the only way to keep fit and Mauritius in the summer is to swim. It's too hot to walk or it's either that or it's raining too heavily. So I buy a decent snorkel and face mask, but I only go swimming on my own for fitness once because I end up with a little bit of a problem when it comes to the open sea. I'm scared of the fish that might be there. It should be said that this is pretty much nonsense because there has never been a shark attack in Mauritius or at least no records of any that the tourist office has released. Actually, the thing I read specified attacks on divers and did not mention snorkelers 
But it's still the Indian Ocean. There are still hundreds of miles of open sea, simply teeming with very large fish. And that is really more than enough to be getting on with. I find out recently that they have just discovered two new species of shark off the coast of Mauritius. And let's say only their mothers would find them handsome. Pretty spooky. The sharks may all live on the other side of the reef, but there are lots of spots where they could slip through gaps in the in the coral of the reef. Then again, the Mauritian fishermen all stand waist deep in the sea on the wrong side of the reef, rod in hand, for hours and hours at a stretch, and so far I haven't noticed any disappearing amidst a load of thrashing. And I've seen a few. So there I am, counting my strokes in blocks of 100, and I'm getting on fine, and I'm thinking, yeah, my fitness programme's going well, but I still feel a little nervous. I pass a couple of little black and white stripy fish who are very cute and seem to want to approach, but can't quite muster the courage. So I stay very still with my fingers splayed and they soon have the confidence to come closer. And then suddenly there's about 60 around me and then they start biting me, albeit very gently. Suddenly they're not so cute anymore. Off I speed, a little nervous now. What else bites? And I pass some very beautiful fish. One that I pass is a chunky fella with a bright yellow beaky face and some very vivid multicolour stripes near its gills and an intense blue body with a little olive green cap on its head. I've seen that type before and I'm not surprised when it swims away nervously. I even chase it a bit to get a closer look, but it's quite obviously scared of me. Then, about a minute later, I pass another of these fish and this one isn't scared at all. She, you'll see why I reckon she's a she, went for me. No joke. She literally flies at me with great speed twice, three times, and it's very clear she's aggressively defending her eggs or something. I shout, what the? Down my snorkel and swim as fast as I can towards the beach. I'm rattled and my swim is ruined. I can't calm down and I keep expecting things to come at me any moment. Of course, I've done precisely the same thing to her mate, chasing it, or her colleague or whatever relation the other identical fish was. I describe the fish to Marcel when I get home, intact, and he reckons it's one of those fish that eat coral and would therefore have really crunching teeth. Thanks, Marcel. We've all heard that sound in underwater documentaries on the telly. You know the sound, you know, real serious crunching on coral. Just as well, I took the hint at the time and left. So Marcel has this ancient auntie, um, Aunt Lorraine, and Auntie Lorraine is about 93 at the time. Um, she died the year after we spent that six months in Mauritius. So it was really nice that we got to know her and spent some time with her. And she says that the little black and white fish are used to taking bread from tourists. And that's why they nibbled me. But of course, the last time she was in the sea was like, I don't know, 1920. And they've probably evolved by now to eat people if they forget to bring the bread. I find out what the aggressive fish is by poking around on the internet. It's a Picasso triggerfish. I could do a drawing but my efforts cannot do justice to the beauty of this creature. Seemingly, they are very territorial and aggressive when guarding their eggs and will see off anyone who approaches. If this happens to you and you are under the surface of the water, you must not swim up towards the surface as the territory of the triggerfish, I learn, extends upwards from the seabed in a cone shape and you will further infuriate it by doing so. You must swim away in a horizontal sense. Okay, the bite mightn't have been very serious, like... I wasn't about to lose a finger or anything, but I personally do not wish to be bitten by any flipping thing at all, in or out of the water. Now, if you meet its much larger cousin, the Titan triggerfish, avoid. Apparently it thinks nothing of taking off a toe or finger. And you can meet those guys if you happen to swim over to the other side of the reef. A week or so later, my dear husband is bitten by a Picasso fish on the ball of his foot. It really hurt. The fish takes quite a strip of skin off him. 
I was a bit sad about the whole fear factor. I knew that there was a wonderful world out there of crazy fishiness just waiting to be enjoyed by anyone brave enough to venture far out towards the reef. But I just can't let go of the fear. One of the most notable things about the sea life near the shore is the variety of moray eels that can be found. I see many different types and they're all beautiful. There was a time when any moray eels would have scared me senseless, but the ones you see in Mauritius are, like all the other wild animals I see, apart from the tonrec, which are little spineless hedgehog fellas, very frightened of humans. The morays that I see are tiny, not what you you would expect of a moray eel, and they come in all sorts of colours. I see one which is purple along the front half of its body and yellow for the back half. Another which is light brown with darker brown rings along the length of its body. And there are lots of silver and yellow ones just off the beach at Marcel's Aunt Lorraine's place. One of whom always hangs around with a yellow and silver ordinary fish. I don't know why, but they're inseparable. I don't know, maybe they had some kind of a, you know, symbiotic relationship. The regular fish, as in fish-shaped, not eel-shaped, is very nervous, but the moray is very calm. And it's really funny to see the regular fish, the fish-shaped one, dart off nervously while the other moray fella remains oblivious. I find a website of a guy who runs a diving school and is a very, very good um, photographer. He's based in Pointe-aux-Canonniers which is not far from Montchoisy. He has an incredible collection of photos of Mauritian mores in his gallery online. And some would really make your hair stand on end, like the vampire moray. But to me, they're all absolutely beautiful. Um, and I, I still look forward to the time when I can see them firsthand. When we swim in February, the sea is 30 degrees and it doesn't offer any real relief from the heat. It's kind of like having a bath in slightly murky, very salty soup. Luckily, there's a cold shower set up outside um, on the edge of the one of the walls of the building next to the beach so you can wash off the sticky salt. All Marcel's relatives, um, Marcel, my husband has got like a million cousins in Mauritius, um, and they, they all swim in their straw hats to protect their complexions. It's worth mentioning that all the white people in Mauritius remain unlined and remarkably youthful, well past the date at which we Westerners look like old prunes. Um, the black people and the Creoles, who are sort of medium skinned, for the most part, look incredibly youthful anyway. The coast of Mauritius is surprisingly unspoilt, although it's perhaps not so surprising when you consider how remote Mauritius is. It's remote from everywhere except La Réunion, the little island belonging to France that's right next to it. As well as the more typical sandy beaches, I love the bits of coast of Mauritius that don't have any reef as they're different from the beaches. The waves have much more power and it's really possible the sharks are right there. Of course, the fact that any shark other than perhaps a dogfish wouldn't manage to survive close to shore, too shallow, reef or not, didn't really alter my fantasy. So there you go. That's a little bit about the sea around Mauritius. It's ever present. It's ever mysterious. It's beautiful beyond belief um, any time of the day or night, really. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that little little tidbit about a bit of tropical ocean. Well, there hasn't been much in the way of um, sketch therapy in this episode of Sketch Therapist. I haven't shared any tips or any techniques with you, but I would say one little thing. Um, with reference to the sketch that I've used to illustrate this particular episode, that was the very beginning of my sketching journey. Um, 
in in that particular sketch i didn't use watercolor paper i used cartridge paper i didn't use a foodie nib i just used a straight nib so no bent nib um i used student grade watercolors so not alone was i not using decent paper but i was using very not very decent paint either um and of course, I probably, at the time, I used to draw everything in pencil and then go over it with pens. So really, it's a far cry from the ease and fluidity with which I draw now. So if there is a lesson to be learned from that, it's just that don't worry if you're a little bit tight and, you know, maybe you don't have all the tools that you will end up having eventually. Just go for it. Just enjoy it. And what is common to then and now is all the just the fun interactions with the people that are around at the time whenever I sketch and that's as true now as it was then. So um, so I, I hope that you've enjoyed this particular episode and hearing a little bit about the sea um, around Mauritius, which of course is so much a part of its its its, its daily life. Um, so I guess that wraps it up for today's episode. Just to add, if you would like to start a little bit of watercolour sketching and don't know where to start, my next course starts on the 4th of July and it runs for five consecutive days until the 8th of July inclusive. So 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th of July, um, 2 o'clock in the afternoon Irish time. So that's 9am Eastern Daylight time, is it, I think? Um and it's sometime later on in the evening in various parts of Asia. So that was just, I changed the time because it was a request from um, some of my Asian students to put it on a little earlier in the day to accommodate them. Uh, sadly, it's not going to work for Australians who want to attend the classes live. However, the classes are, as always, recorded. So you can watch them whenever it suits you. Um, so each class is 90 minutes long. Um, for all five classes, it costs 25 euros so that's pretty close to 25 dollars we're pretty close in um in in value at the moment you will need some tools you will need a pencil you'll need some watercolor paper around the 190 200 grams per square meter weight very easy to get your hold of get hold of either online or in art shops and you've got plenty of time to um to get something in time for your class you all you have to do is purchase the class through my website you'll see it there i think it's the only class that's for sale at the moment on my website roisincure.com or o-i-s-i-n-c-u-r-e.com now one last thing i actually have a very nice set of watercolor paints um that i'm going to give away to somebody who registers for the course and basically what i'm going to do is take all the names and put them in a hat and um, I'm going to do that on the 21st of June so if you fancy winning a fantastic set of Van Gogh watercolour 12 plus 3 paints just make sure to register before the 21st of June um, and you'll be in with a chance to win the paints. Now they're not hugely expensive paints um, they're not I'm not being sponsored by anybody but they're really really good they're excellent quality they're as I say Van Gogh by Royal Talons Meanwhile, if you want to buy some, go ahead and do that and they won't break the bank. So um, I hope to see you soon. I'll leave it at that. And in the meantime, happy sketching. <laughs>